independent, expressive of a spirit of independence, self-confident, unconstrained. Good evening. It's a beautiful evening here in Pasadena, California. You are listening to Independence Day. This is the show that examines the changing face of the music business and the people who are doing the changing. Independence Day brings you independent artists, producers, and music industry visionaries with in-depth interviews, live performances, and inside information, all blessedly without hype and direct from the artists who practice their craft. Tonight on Independence Day, we are very happy to have Mr. Ted Wolfers. If you look up the phrase Renaissance man while flipping through a dictionary, it will describe such a person as someone who has acquired profound knowledge or proficiency in more than one field. Being a professional musician in the new music paradigm fairly requires a level of acumen in diverse disciplines. Even artists with management need to be versed in social media, recording technology, and the internet, in addition to being accomplished musicians with a tireless and diligent work ethic. And being a successful musician also takes luck, and luck favors the prepared. Ted Wolfers is just that sort of artist. He has recorded five albums in eight years, including Lucky Number 7, which was released in January of 2013. He tours nationally as well as holding court at a weekly residency in Los Angeles while splitting his time between L.A. and his hometown of Chicago. Wolfers owns and manages his own vintage recording studio, makes appearances on other people's artists, scores music for video games, and still found time to catch a fish sizable enough to be featured in an exhibit at Chicago's Field Museum of Natural History. His live shows are sometimes a Springsteen-esque three to four hours in length, and if you want to learn how to earn a living in music, listen up, but stay out of Ted Wolfers' way. Welcome to Independence Day, Ted Wolfers. Thank you very much. It's good to hear be here. What a what an intro. Yeah, I'm, man. Uh, well, we we want to. That's all true. It right? is true. None of these. None of these none of, I was about to say none of these are fish tails, except <laughs> for the actual fish tail. Yes, it is. You know, we'll we'll get to the fish in okay. a second, but I want to at least start with some music stuff. You've been a full time musician for essentially all of your adult life. Yes. Right. How you know, how did you get like w- at what point like what age did you become a full time like wage earning musician? Professional. Uh, I would say when I was 20 or 21 years old. Okay. And that was, you were kind of college age in the midst of in, that, in right? In the middle did you, of college. Did yeah. you end up leaving college? I did leave college. And did you, do you regret that decision or did you, would you ever go back and get a degree? I would, uh, you know, I don't know. Um, I, I have never regretted the, the decision. You know, I've, um, when I was there, everybody wanted to learn about other, other people's stories and I was kind of focused on creating my own. Yeah. And so, uh, I don't know. You know, if I wanted to get a law degree at some point, I'd have to get back. Yeah. Maybe. I don't know. Maybe you can get a law degree without. There's Well, there's the whole shtick, too, if you become successful enough. Like, they give you, like, your alma mater will give you That's a degree. That's true. You know, which yeah, I Bob guess is, Dylan has, what, how many yeah. honorary degrees, exactly. Exactly. He's got lots of letters after his name, which you never actually hear. Right. Um, and what did, you, what did you study in school? I was a philosophy major and a music major for a little bit and uh, studied life and love and and women and good times. Do you think that the philosophy major is because you're a writer, or did it help you be a writer? I mean, I'm seeing music writing as I'm speaking about here. Like, was it, is it all kind of part of the same experience? Was that what you were going for? From an early age, um, I started to read uh, philosophers, and it's just something that's been fascinating to me all my life, still is. And so it just was a natural um, kind of jump to to continue studying that in college and. It has helped me write a little bit. I actually, there's a song I wrote in 1997 called uh, The Water Buffalo. And I actually based it on uh, Rene Descartes' um, kind of knowing nothing and kind of going back to the root of, of no knowledge is all knowledge. And So, yeah, I guess I have used philosophy a little bit. But it's, uh, you know, I, I think everybody who 
who studies the great thinkers and studies the great minds uh, has to borrow something from them. Yeah. I, I always find it fascinating the other things that musicians or artists do. You know, because you think we all know musicians as I mean, we learn of them because of their music. Sure. But then sometimes they'll branch out into acting with varying levels of quality. You know, you got a sure. guy like Sting who was in a few movies and he's not bad. Um, but then there's well, other that's because p- he's Sting. It's because he's Sting. <laughs> but then you've got people, you know, who are, you know, uh, <laughs> you know, people paint. Like Jerry Garcia was a painter. Sure. And you know, or even even non- other non-artistic pursuits. Like I, I'm always uh, fascinated by the fact that Mark Knopfler was a journalist. Before he made his way as a musician, that's how we all know him. But if you listen to his songs, you can you can see that keen eye yeah. for observation and like pulling people's stories out and telling story in totally. a way that's informational. You know, like different people, like uh, like Neil Young rhymes everything. Everyone's got their kind of thing, but but Knopfler has got that journalist's right. eye, and I, I find it really really interesting. Yeah, um, yeah, no, I mean it's it's one of the funny things. I've I've lived such a ridiculous life, and I have so many great stories that. Um, Occasionally, I'll write a really long email to a friend, you know, kind of summing up the the weekend or the month's adventures. And um, I just wrote an essay for an, another show recently on on a radio sh- station. And um, a lot of people have said, you know, you really need to put that all in kind of a book form or some something. And I've always said, oh, come to the shows and you know, listen to the songs. That everything's in the lyrics. But uh, it's something that it's kind of in the back of my mind. Kind of maybe I should you know, explore some other things. I, I yeah. love, I'm, I'm really big into photography. Um, I wish I could paint. Yeah. That would be amazing. Yeah, there's guys like Steve Earle, like I mentioned Renaissance Man in your, your little intro there. And it's something that I, I, I get, definitely get that vibe from you, is that, you know, writing, you know, and I find as a writer also of, of both, you know, prose, for lack of a better word, sure. and music is how different the approach is for each discipline you know with the the challenge of songwriting is finding a way to say a lot with a little right you know and that's kind of Hemingway-esque when it comes to writing prose mm-hmm. and to to apply that differently I mean I find it very freeing when I go to write actual the written word it's not in a song it doesn't have to be a couplet or it doesn't have to rhyme it it's not a tweet to, it's not a tweet yeah <laughs> right. god help me but it doesn't have to fit in this like little box sure. like, it can be whatever it's going to mm-hmm. be you know and I find I find that wordplay fascinating and it, it is, and, and it's fun, and I think um, I read a lot of autobiographies of a lot of musicians, and whether or not they're, you know, ghostwritten or with, with help, you know, you can tell the, the, the essence of what they're saying. And some of the really great songwriters are really great novelists and really great writers. Because, Who do you like? Um, I really loved uh, Chronicles. I love Bob Dylan's. I loved uh, Tom Petty. Um, uh, Keith Richards' life, I think, is so eloquently written. He has such a command over the English language that a lot of people's, like, their first impression, I think, is talk like a pirate. But he actually just talks like a real, you know, English scholar of the world, of, of centuries well, of literature. He's, he's seen the world. He's, he is essentially yes. a pirate. Yeah. In a way. Indeed. You know, he's... Well, he, we all are. <laughs> I mean, he's... he's uh, but he is. He's traveling around, and he's visit, visiting ports, foreign ports, and enjoying the fairs of the local uh, flora and fauna, if you will. Yeah, but, but he has just such a really rich um, knowledge of history and of, of language and of people and of artists that really kind of really shines through in his autobiography. But there's, you know, like you read the Rod Stewart and the Ronnie Wood ones, they're great. They're great stories, you know, but, and they're written with that wink and a smile that you'd expect hanging out with those guys. But Keith really has a thing of like, this book's going to stand the test of time. 
Yeah, and I, and I was impressed by that. I haven't read the I haven't read the Keith Richards one yet. One bounced through the radio station, like one copy came in, right on. and you know, there was a mad fight to see who was going to get. Because that's the thing when you work for an NPR affiliate, you, they are they carpet bomb you with books. Which is a beautiful thing. Sure. And I've, I've, I'm willing to admit step one is that I have a problem with books. I have a lot of books. But I'm very Ray Bradbury about it. I don't want to get rid of them. Like, I feel like I should be getting rid of the books, but I feel like it's different. Getting rid of books in 2013 is different than getting rid of books in 1993. Right. Now, then you would just get rid of books. You could always go get another one. I feel like there's going to come a point where there aren't any books. There left. won't be any. Or bookstores. Or bookstores. Or... And I, you know, I call me old fashioned, archaic, whatever you want, but I want those books. Right. Like, I like being surrounded by them. It's a, it's, a, it's a structure. I build my own bookshelves, and there they are, and there's my books. And people come over to see me. They, can lo- they, they know a lot about me by looking what's on those bookshelves. Three quick things about books. Um, first off, there's a great Warren Zevon documentary about his last record that he was making while he was ill. And during it, he quotes somebody. I don't know what the, who, who said the quote, but I always use it all the time. It's, uh, we buy books because we think we're buying the time to read them. And I think that's so true because you have the shelf of books. And sometimes you think by just having a book, you've ar- you already know it. It's already helping you along even though you haven't read it yet and you look forward to reading it. Uh, my second thing about books, I just heard a really great story. There is a uh, sheik somewhere who has collected for thousands of years all of the great books. And he has something like 26 or 27 camels carrying each of these volumes by alphabet. And basically what it is, is it's his way, it's called the moving library, and it's his way of protecting all of the great works of literature, because he realized all of, every time there's a bombing in the Middle East, every time there's an earthquake or any type of natural disaster, the libraries usually go away, and you lose all the art, and you lose all the... Or there's a war, like all the Egypt, uh, the ancient... You know, books that were lost in—is it Alexandria? Yeah, the Alexandria. All the books that were lost in Iraq. All the books that were have been lost. You know, World in, War Two. World War Two. All the you know, and and, um, and so he literally has these hundreds of camels and this staff of like a thousand people, and it's called the Moving Library, and it goes all around the desert. And I don't know if that's not true or not, but I just heard it on NPR. Well, I'm going to choose. To, I'm going to choose to believe it because I want to believe that that Wouldn't, kind of thing isn't that is happening. Cool? That's very cool. And then my third thing with books is um, I live in the Sherman Oaks area, and uh, the Sherman Oaks Library is uh, is amazing. They have rock concerts there, and it's run by really awesome people. So there's my plug for my local library. Yeah, Ray Bradbury, to, to tie it back in, was a huge, not surprisingly, you know, unsurprisingly, was a huge advocate for libraries. South Pasadena, I think, was the one that he tended to frequent oh, cool. a lot. I didn't know that. And, uh, you know, he would go and speak, and he was very, very involved. And obviously, you know, it's a passionate thing for him being a, the author that he is. Um, I don't know if Vonnegut, another favorite author of mine, I'm not sure if he was into libraries or not, but you th- it wouldn't surprise me. Sure. Um, but, you know, we're, we're, all, we're, we're off on the book tangent now. Let's, t- let's bring it back just a little bit to some music. I want to give everybody— I feel like this is a book, uh, like a book tour now. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I guess it is. It's, it's a life tour, man. Yes. We'll talk about your life. This is, this is your life, Ted Wolfers. Uh, but let's, uh, let's play a little music. We've, okay. yeah, you've got a, a recent record. It just came out early this year mm-hmm. in January. It's called Lucky Number 7. Yeah. And you were telling me earlier it's, the se- it's called Lucky Number 7 because you've done seven records to date. This is the seventh studio album of mine. Um, five were solo as Ted Wolfers, and, uh, and two in the 90s were with my old band, Becker's Bridge. Very so nice. Uh, that was a Chicago band? It was actually Columbus, Ohio band. Columbus, Ohio. Okay. Yeah. A little bit of a Chicago band that moved to Columbus, Ohio, and then 
kind of dissolved and moving back to Chicago. Okay. Well, when we come back, I want to talk about your hometown because it's also my hometown and kind of we'll do a compare and contrast of, of LA and Chicago. I'm curious to see what you have to say about that. Right for now, this is Ted Wolfers with his track Break My Heart from his most recent record, Lucky Number Seven on Independence Day.
Very, very happy to have my guest in our studio tonight, Mr. Ted Wolfers, Los Angeles resident, but he's a child of the world, believe it or not. Chicago is his hometown, but you can, like I said, you can find him here in L.A. He does a weekly show at, uh, what's the name of that place where you do the weekly show? Man, I've got it here somewhere. It just started. Uh, King's Head Pub. The King's Head Pub. It's my favorite bar to go drink at. Uh, They've named a meal after me there, and a couple of weeks ago they said, why don't you come in here and play every week? So to be able to make music in your favorite bar, it's pretty awesome. Yeah, absolutely. It, and to have a, you know, a residency is an interesting thing because it can mean, it can be very a very serious thing. But it seems like, you know, I, I'm going to make it out to one of these things. I haven't yet. You just started doing these. Mm-hmm. But you're going to have fun with this. I can guarantee it. Yeah, it's, it gives me, um, you know, I, I play three to four hours nonstop. And I, I, I go through tons of weirdness of my catalog. I play a bunch of weird covers. I play some classical music, some of my classical music that doesn't really get to be performed live very often, and I'm going to be bringing in some very cool special guests. So it's uh, it's going to be a fun a fun run, and it's it's just an amazing bar, great food, great drinks, great people. This is in Studio City. Studio City on Ventura Boulevard. Every Thursday night, going through at least October. Yeah, well, they said the rest of the year, and I said, let's let's go until October. <laughs> you know, let's see if we yeah. still like each other then. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Which which brings to mind something completely out of left field. But I've often felt that marriages should have an expiration date. Yeah, because I feel like you know, there's and that this came from one of my best friend. I refer to him as my attorney in Chicago, uh, and uh, he he came up with this theory. We came up with it together, where you know, you you get married for five years or ten years, or you can determine the term of your marriage so that after five years. You have if a state you, of the union. If, and if, you, you kind of, if you want to go, you're free to go. Like no no hard feelings, no divorce papers, no elaborate money expenditure, you know, division of property, whatever. If you choose to stay, you can re-up. You can do another five, another 10, another 20, sure. whatever you're going to do. Because that, I think, does two things. That, you know, we, Divorce is such a problem in our society, and it's terrible what it's doing to our families. I feel like a Republican when I say that, but I do believe it. But it's a way out. Without having, you know, it's like a, it's a clean way out, and sure. it and it also makes the re-up more beautiful, because it's then like I'm with you up for five years, and now I want to do it again. I think everybody should be able to get married, and everybody should be able to have an expiration date on their marriage. Yeah, we are in agreement on that. <laughs> uh, my guest tonight, Ted Wolfers, Wolfers, W. U-L-F-E-R-S. You can learn about him at tedwolfers.com. You can also find him on Facebook, facebook.com slash tedwolfers, and follow him on Twitter, same address, twitter.com slash tedwolfers, or simply at tedwolfers. Uh, you've got seven records out, man. This new one just came out, and you were telling me before the sales, because you, you tend to kind of bounce back and forth between here and Chicago, and there's a barometer you were telling me about sales. Like, r- walk me through that again. Well, um, one of the interesting things, uh, playing around the Midwest, um, throughout the 2000s, uh, there were some really good years, you know, in the early to middle 2000s, the where aughts. people were really buying music at shows and were really interested in in supporting friends. And, you know, we all have friends who, you know, sell a million records at shows, and we all have friends who have never sold a CD at a show. And it was kind of interesting to go through a, a kind of a doldrums couple of years where I was playing markets where usually I would move a lot of merch and I'd show up and they it's not that they weren't interested it was one of those things like oh man that was the greatest show ever you're great I gotta go I got a 10 million dollar bar tab but I can't afford the 10 dollar CD you know or whatever yeah Yeah, I gotta go to Starbucks and buy a 7 dollar latte yeah and and so but but I can't you know get the 5 dollar whatever and so um, 
so yeah, it was really nice to see, you know, in the last year or so, um, people are buying music some more. It shows a lot and it's great. And it's nice to see that people want to take the show home with them and very lucky. Yeah, well, that's just the thing. In, in an era when product is, physical product is sort of going away. Right. Um, you know, for an independent style artist, which is kind of what you are, like a high level indie, I would assume, right? Because mm-hmm. you're not, you're, are you signed to a label? I have my own label. Yeah. Um, but I've not signed to, uh, to any other label, no. Yeah, and now artists are free to make different choices in terms right. of that. You don't feel like you have to have a label to have that kind of support. So, uh, you know, as an artist who's not on a label in a traditional sense, you know, you being in control of your destiny, you know, at this level, merch is still something that people buy. Sure. You know, when you're Justin Bieber or when you're some, some you know, a record that would have been in Best Buy or Musicland or Record Town or whatever your retailer was once upon a time. Um, those people maybe, you know, they're, they're going to sell to moms and pops, people who traditionally always bought music, but the kids aren't buying records. But at our level... When you go to a show and you, you, you still want to take something home with them. Yeah, I went to see Ted Wolfers and he was awesome and I bought his CD and I have it. Well, and also it's really great. This is my debut record on vinyl and it's a double vinyl record. Is Disc it 180G? 2 is red. I uh, didn't do the 180 because um, really um, I asked a million of my audiophile friends and they said, if you're selling a double record, just go with the regular. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's... Uh, it, it would be, you know, I, I just had to carry uh, 30 or 40 of them to the mailbox the other day. If I had to carry 30 or 40 180 gram double albums, yeah, it would have been even more of a workout. Yeah. I had to travel with and the mail and everything. But uh, yeah, no, it's um, disc two is red. It's blowing everybody's mind who sees that. They think it's really cool. I think it's awesome. And uh, people are buying the record. You know, people are buying more vinyl than there are CDs at the shows, which is great. Yeah. Vinyl, you know, I don't want to go off on the vinyl tangent because I could talk about that for the rest sure. of the night by itself. But it has replaced, I still I still like getting a CD. Like, I like it when they give you a CD with the vinyl because mm-hmm. it's going to go on my phone and my sure. iPod and in my truck when I'm driving around. I can't play a vinyl record. Right. But for at home, I, I love the critical listening aspect of it. I love the experience of it having experience. a physical product. And you, you're you looking through, because I, I love my iPod when I first got it. It was the most amazing thing in the world. I've got 500 albums in my pocket, which is an incredible novelty. But then over time, it became exactly that, an incredible novelty. Like if I want to hear that song and I'm flying over the South Pacific, which I have been, it's great to pull out that random track that I loved mm-hmm. in college. But... It, they don't sound that terribly great. There's nothing romantic about the iPod. And with this, with this vinyl, I'm holding one. Ted was nice enough to bring me one. Uh, you know, this is cool. This is art. It's artwork. And also, uh, you, you commit. You commit to the experience. You know, you have to listen to a side. I mean, obviously, if you know what you're doing, you can skip about. But you have to commit to a side. It's not just going yeah. through, oh, I like the first 10 seconds of this and next in your iPod. And honestly, making music, um, you know, I started really getting, really recording in like 1997 and recording to 2-inch and recording to ADAT, and then Pro Tools came along. And so my entire teenage, youthful, young adult into adult life has been recording music at a very high level. And so when I would hear that back on an iPod, the iPod has always really disappointed me. Just the, the MP3 format, you know, it's just, it's very, it's, the portability is amazing. I mean, a, my very good friend, Richard Dodd, who mastered my record, He's done a lot of work with George Harrison. He did all the Traveling Wilburys records. And he said to me one time, he's like, you know, Ted, I can have all the Beatles records right here. And that's amazing. And I said, yeah, no, that is amazing. Just I'd rather him on CD or vinyl, but that's me. Yeah. 
And now, I mean, there's, I mean, I've got a couple of friends who are really big audiophiles, and they've got the like the SACDs and right. the DVD audios, and and I'm an audiophile to an extent. But as like you, I was always on the music side. If I'm going to spend money, I'm going to buy it on my input side of my music. Sure, I'm buying recording gear and microphones and tape decks and <laughs> hard drives now. You know, that's that's where I spend my money. It's all the biggest joke. I mean, up until very recently, I've never had a decent stereo ever. Totally. You know, it, it, I have my studio speakers. Yeah. But like my actual stereo stereo is like a 1989 boombox. Yeah. That has a CD player that still works. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's interesting how that works, isn't it? Let's uh, let's play some live music. Speaking of music, okay. we've been rambling through lots of different topics, which I was hoping that we would. But uh, let's let's play some live music. Tell me what uh, what have you got for us first here, Ted? Is this going to be something from the record? Something older? Something newer? This this is a song from the record. I'm going to send this one out to you. Me personally, because I saw on Facebook you were hanging a, a Tom Waits picture. I was. And framing it and putting it together, and this has a uh, a good lyric about Tom Waits in it. One of my favorites. So it's called "Stay for a Little While" off of Lucky Number Seven. Okay, let's hear this. This is Ted Wolfer's Stay for a Little While, which you will find in his most recent record, Lucky Number 7, available at shows, Amazon, uh, I'm assuming you're on CD Baby. Uh, and Amoeba. And Amoeba. And Freak Beat, and um, several other independent record stores around the country, and uh, but all CD Baby, iTunes, all that stuff. And vinyl. Vinyl's available so at go, all uh, as well. So go buy the record. It's a good record. It's, uh, it's powerful. It is. Got a lot of cuts in here. So let's hear the acoustic version of this, Ted. Thanks so much. Morning after, I got lost in the rafters. Laughter of love wasn't meant to be. But I gave you all I got in the guitar center parking lot. So much for broken dreams. So why don't you stay? Stay. 
cry We can stay up all night I can stay Ted Wolfers on Independence Day. Very, very nice, man. High energy rock and roll. That's a phrase I toss around a lot when I hear music like that. But it's, a, it's hard to do that well, I think, because it's easy just to do up-tempo songs. Mm-hmm. And it's easy to just, you know, kind of ape stuff we've come to know as being quality high-tempo, you know, sure. high-energy rock and roll, Tom Petty, early Tom Petty, goes on from there. But it's, 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 it's not as easy as it looks. You know, Tom Petty, he'll tell you that... Uh, Everybody thinks he's like this most easygoing guy in the world, but he he said I'm admittedly neurotic right. about doing this stuff. I'm a DT's and crazy for details. Well, you know, for Lucky Number Seven, we recorded 78 songs for the record, and um, it was the kind of thing where I'd write a really good one, and then I'd try to outdo myself, and I'd keep trying to outdo myself, and I'd you know play it for my engineers, play it for my co-producers, and they're like, that one's better than the one that we just recorded. Okay, well, let's record this one now, and let's steal the bridge from the other one and put it in this one. You know, yeah. and, and so it is a, um, it is a craft. It, it's 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 you have to be neurotic, you have to be professional about it, but um, you also have to have fun to to come up with a song like that that makes a connection with somebody. It has to come from an inner joy of some sort that, uh, you know. That guy who's asking that girl to stick around a little bit longer. Who knows what's going to happen? And hopefully, it's something really fun. Yeah, it has to be. It has to. There has to be an element of, of realness mm-hmm. to it, because that's what you want people to relate to this yes. when they're listening to the song. You know, you're singing the song, but they're putting themselves in that position. Well, that's the whole thing that we're trying to relate to with art. When I write a song, um, wherever in my my own personal space, it's my song. But as soon as I play it for you, it's your song. You know, and it's the songs that inspire people and move people that that change the world and change you know people's soundtrack to their lives. And, um, you know, I, I quote this a lot, but I love the Mark Twain quote. A really good story is 50% fact and 50% fiction. And that's true. And that comes with songwriting because, you know, most of my songs are from a, from a 99% honest place of an experience I've had. But you have to throw that 1% of, of polish in there of, of storytelling to make it your song. Yeah, because uh, it's no longer mine once you hear it. Yeah, there's well, you know, this is inside baseball with songwriting, but some girls' names are more lyrical than other girls' That's names. That's true. Like you write a song about Gretchen, and how do you get Gretchen into a song? It can be done. It's just the first one that came to mind. Right. Um, but there's other girls' names. Rosalita rolls off the tongue. There's a reason Springsteen named that song. Totally. Rosalita rolls off the tongue. You know, 
Gretchen, <laughs> you know, I'm trying to, trying to sing Rosalita with Gretchen as the lyric, and I just can't even do it right here. Oh, Gretchen, save it <laughs> in the fire. By the way, Gretchen, for you listening out there, we love you, honey. Yeah, all you Gretchens. Actually, I, honestly, I love the name Gretchen. I like it when beautiful girls have, like, guttural names, like German guttural names. That's I don't know a, what it is. It's a sexy... That's a sexy name. It sure is. It sure is. So tell me this. Um, your your songwriting process, are you are you a lightning in the bottle kind of guy? It seems like you, before what you were saying, you kinda you're willing to smash them apart and recombine them in different aspects. Once so it's a, they're, it's once a craft. They're written, what, yeah, when you're making a record, that's when I'm I'm willing to have them fight them out. But when I'm just writing, I always write in threes for some reason. It's a horrible curse and a wonderful blessing. And it's definitely kept me awoke, or kept kept me up way too late at night, for many many too many nights. But um, it's the kind of thing where um, it's usually lightning in the bottle. It's it's uh, the really good lick, the really good lyric usually come right together. The really great progression, uh, whether that song is finished in five minutes or five years, you never know. That's where you're you know kind of bashing it out, trying out new ideas. But I write a lot when I'm hiking. I uh, write a lot when I'm uh, when I'm driving in the shower. Um, Do you up. scribble on napkins? Oh my god. You're one of those guys? I have. I'm now a little bit more on the phone. I'll, you know, the, the, my phone memo or I'll, you know, t- kind of text things to myself. But I have several just banker's boxes full of napkins and backs of business cards and backs of receipts and just torn off pieces of paper. Um, yeah, it's just whenever I'm a listener, you know, I love hanging out in a bar and just listening to people talk. And, you know, sometimes you, you want to give them credit for writing the song for you. But, you know, um, you have to write the song, but you have no idea how many times just a conversation or an experience will, will immediately write the song. I also take really great pride in writing uh, awesome impromptu songs with shows. And it's something I always like to do. I always like to say, you know, give me five words. Let's pick a genre of music. And uh, whether it's death metal or ska or rock or reggae or whatever, and I've basically probably done most of all of the genres of that. And it's fun. And it, it, it shows the audience uh, how easy and hard it is. And they'll give me a word like nostril or Gretchen, you know, and you just have to impromptuly, you know, kind of deal with it and make it fun and, and off the cuff. And oftentimes I'll forget them minutes later. But um, some people who have them on record and put them up on YouTube and stuff, there's some great stuff. Yeah. Well, it's, that's the thing that's so great about music. And it's different from something like painting. It's hard to make painting an experience. Yeah. You know, whereas music lives and breathes. I mean, I remember being a kid. And when you're younger, you know, I wasn't as open-minded about this kind of thing. You know, while you'd go to a concert, you'd want to hear the song as it sounds. But then the more I got into music, the more I realized that's not actually how I want to hear it because the version of American Girl that Tom Petty recorded in 1970-whatever is the version of it was. That that was like the version from then. That's the photograph. And that's the photograph of right. what it was. But it still lives and breathes, and it's going to continue to evolve and change over time. And maybe it'll be pretty close because it's the same song. Totally. But... The way that they're going to play it, with you know, when a different bass player plays with them, sure. or a different drummer plays with them, it's going to or change. Extend a section, or maybe you you sing a part, the low part higher now, or maybe you sing the high part lower now. You know who's masterful at that of, of making things malleable with a whole band is uh, Adam Duritz from Counting Crows. If you see him, see them play live, whether you're a fan or not, he's masterful. The, he'll have the band; they'll be playing a song, and then he'll kind of he'll. He's almost like a conductor. He'll have it like he'll break it down, and then he'll be playing a chord change for one song, and he'll sing the entire melody of another song 
in the melody of the prior song with the different lyrics. Crazy. And the band will just kind of go with them, and they'll play a whole separate song in the chord change of the, the song they had started with, or vice versa. Sure. And then sometimes cycle through three or four different songs, and then back to the original one somehow. It's he's he's very it's very also, good at that. It's almost jazz in that sense. Yeah, it yeah. is almost like it's jazz. It's quoting it's quoting other you know that's cool. Yeah, it's it's uh, you know they they get kind of a bad rap as a VH1 band I think. They had some great um, songs. You know, my, uh, I'm really good friends at the Cracker Camp, and um, I just this, saw Camper this last weekend. Oh, did you? Yeah, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm good friends with David, and um, really good friends with Johnny and Frank, and uh, I've opened for Camper Van Beethoven. That was a very fun show a couple of years ago, and but. Um, David did such a great job producing this Desert Life. It's a really great he did. Crows record. I agree. And um, yeah, there's a plug. Yeah, he doesn't produce a lot. No, I almost wish he did more. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's a he's a he's a Renaissance man. He's done he, a lot of different things. He's an interesting cat. He's uh, he's really one of the most eloquent people on the fight for the digital download rights. And everything. Definitely, yeah, definitely. And he, um, I hope he gets even more attention. And uh, yeah, I hope more people take the time to read what he has to say about it because he's usually right. Yeah, he certainly is. And kudos. I'm glad he, we need, the world needs <laughs> David Lowry. What the world needs now what, is, is, is more David, is more David yeah, Lowry. Is, is less, less folk singers and more David Lowry, yes. Uh, it's true. We always joke because we're, we're all Virgos, Johnny, David, and I. And um, you do kind of have to be anal retentive about your work and details and everything. And he's bringing out every detail in the digital download fight. Yeah. And he's still writing great songs. So it's the, yeah. and we're pow- the anal creatives. More power to him, man. So Definitely. how about how about another tune, man? All right, another tune. Um, let's do it. All right, what, what's this going to be, or is this off the cuff? Uh, we'll do uh, we'll do a song. Um, we'll do a song called the Diddy Bop Hop from my What Would Santa Do record. So a Christmas tune, Christmas in July, man. Yes, ex- except it's one of the non-holiday um, songs on that record. Those just happen to be songs that were you know kind of sitting around, and we put them on the holiday record. And it's one of the most um, Interesting holiday record you'll ever hear. Um, a couple of the songs were banned in Alabama, which I took a lot of pride in, um, but for good reasons. And people really, really love the record, and I, I love all the emails, and I love all the pictures of people blasting it while they're setting up their Christmas trees or menorahs or doing whatever they do during the holidays. Festivus. Festivus, exactly. But uh, this is the Diddy Bop Hop, and it's uh, one of the non-holiday songs from What Would Santa Do? All right, let's hear this. Ted Wolfer is so proud to have him here on Independence Day. All right, Diddy Bop Hop. Kick out the shoes and get your feet dirty to the sound of the 30 so high. Your body's in motion with a satiating potion It'll cause a commotion, it'll hit the spot Blow Joe, I gotta go to the parlor on a Friday night The Diddy Bop's playing, all the people there were saying It's the best good time in town, that's right I said, oh, take me on the moonbeam Oh, take me on a star Oh, take me where you wanna go I got two girls of my own. Well, little old pokes about my jokes. A big mama will get you done. And then the other side till they find a lots of a summer peaches. Oh, what fun. But the girls on stage are there. The rage with the bass man on the floor. 
Singing so sweet with a fancy beat You'll be screaming and hollering more, more, more I said, oh, take me on the moonbeam Oh, take me on a star Oh, take me where you want to go I got two girls in my arms So fancy to be dancing. It's so fancy to be dancing. Beautiful night to be. Oh, romancing. It's so fancy. To be dancing Well, kick off your shoes And get your feet dirty To the sound of the 30 so high Your body's in motion With a satiating potion That'll cause a commotion That'll hit the spot You know, oh, Joe I gotta go to the parlor On a Friday night The DD Bob's playing All the people that were saying It's the best good time in town That's right I said, oh Take me on a moonbeam Oh, take me on a star Oh, take me where you want to go I got two girls on my arm I got two girls on my arm I got two girls on my arm Diddy Bop Hop Ted Wolfers with the Diddy Bop Hop. Is that about the actual Diddy Bops? It is. Friends of yours? We had a crazy night in Los Angeles, the three of us, years and years ago. Yeah. And uh, I was out here on tour, and I, uh, I'd i had a little bit to drink, and they had had a little bit to drink, and we ended up dancing all night and making music. It was great. Very, very nice. And where are they based, the Diddy they're, Bops? They're here. They're, they're here. Ha- I, I believe they're here. Yeah, last I heard. Oh, very nice. I know about them from Garrison Keillor. From, oh, cool. Uh, they play on the, the Prairie Home Companion. They do good work with the music on that show. I think they've got some good artists. We had an artist uh, just recently. One of our artists who was just on our show. Oh, cool. Was on the was on the Garrison Keillor show, uh, Prairie Home Companion, just recently. Let's talk a little about geography. Uh, you are a Chicagoan, or at least mm-hmm. Northern Illinoisan, by bur- born and bred. Born and bred. Born and bred. So you uh, you did go away to college, and you mm-hmm. were playing in bands in college. You you ejected from college to go do music full time. What was it that made you come to Los Angeles? Um, you know, I just, uh, I saw my first baseball game ever here when I was 18 months old at Dodger Stadium. Um, so I, Cubs or Dodgers then? What's that? Cubs or Dodgers? Uh, definitely Dodgers. Um, if you Google me, you'll, you'll know why. (laughs) I had a little bit of a, of a media blitz with the whole Brewers and the Cubs a couple of years ago and got me into all kinds of trouble and all over ESPN and ABC News and blah, blah, blah. But, uh. Yeah, no. So, so I saw a Dodger game when I was a real little kid, and I, I had some family here growing up. So I'd been, you know, to California before, but starting in like 2002, um, when Agave Blue came out, my album, I started, you know, touring around the country, and I started coming out here more and um, playing shows. I played the Knitting Factory when that was still around, and then I started playing shows at the Mint and Molly Malone's and a few other places, and um, it just, you know, became a natural, a really f- favorite part of my year. When I was out here, and then I became like I was spending three months out here each year, 
And then for about four years before full-time moving out here, I was spending about six months out of the year living in hotels, crashing on couches, crashing with people, house-sitting. And, um, yeah, it was just, it was, uh, you can't beat the views. You can't beat the women. Um, you can't beat the good times that are here. You know, Randy Newman had it right. Yes. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, so many people, friends of mine who live in Chicago, they, they kind of rag on L.A., for all the obvious reasons that even I sometimes rag on LEA, the kind of, there's kind of a vapidness sometimes, sure. or uh, you know uh, everybody's on the make kind of thing. Well, five of my really good Chicago friends, I've brought them out here, and they all live here now. Yeah, and <laughs> so. I you know, but, but I I I love it here. Yeah. I don't. I've I've come to terms with this. I don't love Los Angeles as a city. Like it's fine. It's great in a lot of ways. But I love living in Los Angeles. Whereas Chicago, it's almost the opposite. Like, I love Chicago. I love what it stands for. I love mm-hmm. the people. But living there, I don't know that I loved. Chicago is an amazing city. It's the prettiest skyline. Um, amazing art, amazing sports, amazing everything, amazing food. Except? One of the things that really, <laughs> really uh, bugs me about Chicago is, you know, they have the big Lollapalooza Fest there that hardly any Chicago bands ever play. They have the big Taste of Chicago. I've played a bunch of my, you know, Chicago bands. I've friends. played at the Taste of Chicago myself. But very, very few Chicago bands until they make like an effort. To, oh, well, this year we're gonna have Chicago bands. Um, every year Blues Fest is, is there. It's a wonderful blues thing. I played in 2005. I was a member of Andre Taylor and the Blues Alley Cats at the Kingston Mines. I played probably 50 or 60 gigs at the Kingston Mines. None of the Kingston Mines Blues or Blues Chicago bands play Blues Fest. And so I was kind of, you know, in the middle of this music scene where I was getting played on the radio around the country and people were buying records around the country. And here I am in, you know, one of the biggest cities in the world and kind of banging my head against the wall. And, oh, your hair's too long, or your shirt doesn't look like this or this and that. And one time I, I was wearing one of my stage shirts in a, in a, you know, diner at five in the morning and some girl came up and she's like, is it Halloween? And I was just wearing a shirt like that in California getting compliments. You know, it was just one of those things, and, and um, but what really made me really want to move out here was uh, the Chicago Tribune had a spread, um, full two-page, huge spread on the top 20 cover bands to check out this summer. Oh, my Lord. And that would be cool if they had that for, here are the best new albums that you should check out of original artists, or here are the best touring Chicago artists. None of that. It was just, here are the best 20 cover bands to go see. And I said, it's time to go. You know, it, it is the cover band capital of the world. It's a great place, great place to visit, great place to live. I like it out here. Yeah. yeah. I felt like I was going in circles in Chicago, playing the same venues over and over again. And it's too bad, too, because I have friends and family there. Love the taco joint, although my, my favorite taco joint's gone. It was right across from where, uh, what was the fictitious record store from High Fidelity? Uh, championship vinyl right on on milwaukee and on okay. was el chino tacos incorporated nice little 4 a.m taco divey bar because they don't have taco trucks there it's too cold for taco they trucks. just started taco trucks yeah. and then they're not at all like the taco trucks out here yeah but i i still prefer like the brick and mortar place because i want to sit down i want to sit in a curb i want to sit in a chair a four mica chair sure where i want to sit you know and the giant cereal bowl full of salsa and we would always play the double door and then go to go to there yep and it's sad it's it's, it's gone uh, it, the the sign on the door when they or the, when they they tore it they tore it down said, uh, uh, "Wheeze is our oh, closed for remodelation," mm-hmm. and that's the last we ever heard of El Chino Tacos Incorporated. So sad. Yeah, no, the, great, amazing food there, amazing times, but uh, 
yeah, it's kind of tough to be an original musician there, uh, yeah. at least in my genre of music. And you go play there quite a bit now. I do. I, I have family there. I have great friends there. I still have really deep connections to a lot of the clubs. And uh, recently I've been having some great shows at the Hard Rock Cafe. Tell me, tell me how like an audience or the fans are different in Chicago versus Los Angeles. I mean, you play everywhere. You're, you're a nationally touring guy. But just in the, for this case, let's, let's isolate it to those two cities. There's the, there's the L.A. audience that wants to listen because you might be the next big thing. And then there's the L.A. audience that doesn't listen because they think they're the next big thing. And so they only want to listen to themselves. Um, in the Midwest... They like to drink a little bit more and have a, a crazier time, so it's a little bit more of a rowdy audience. Um, not that there aren't rowdy audiences here, but um, it's yeah, it, it's it's a fun place to play. It's also fun to to play for friends and 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 people who have known, you know, my catalog of music for the last twelve to fifteen years. And so I'll get some really rare requests there. Um, there's a lot of people who sing along and kind of go nuts to the songs. Um, not that there aren't people out here who do the same, but, um, you know, I'm still a new guy on the block in a lot of the LA circles, uh, even though I've spent so much time out here, but, um, I would say a rowdiness factor. The Chicago fans, uh, just want to be a little bit, a bit more rowdy. We're all crazy in Chicago, yes. or so said Jonathan Brandmeier. How is the industry different there? I mean, is when I say industry in Chicago, I mean, I almost chuckle just a little bit. But they do have some you know, semblance of a music industry there. They have some really great studios. They have some really great... Um, they kind of have everything going for them, and just nobody's doing anything with it. You know, and I just look at the, you know, the Wilco's or the Smashing Pumpkins or kind of the big rock Americana, whatever bands coming out of uh, Chicago over the last 20 years, they always had to get famous somewhere else, you know, and, and they kind of like, oh, now you're, you're big in LA and New York, now we'll listen to you, instead of, you know, kind of owning them from the beginning. Yeah. They kind of have to be told who to like and who to go for, and, uh, but at the same time, you know, I, I, it sounds like I'm ripping on them, I'm not, it's a great place to live, it's a great place to be, but, um, you know, I don't know. There's something about when I come home from a gig in Hollywood and I, I have to take Mulholland Drive on my way home with the moon above me and the stars. And sometimes you can see the ocean. It's pretty nice. It's not a bad place to yeah. call home. This is a paradise, and I usually throw an expletive in there, but I'm going to leave it out right now. It's a magical wonderland. It, it really is. It's a magical is. wonderland. The, the hiking, the biking, and uh, yeah, it's, it's a good place to come home to from tour. Yeah, and you never, I think the moment for me, this comes up on the show, like every time I think about Chicago, I had played at the Elbow Room, the basement oh, yeah. venue. with the pole. With the pole. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's a fun room, because like I said, the crowds are into it there. Yep. You know, I had great shows there. And it had snowed. The parking's bad enough in Chicago, but then it had snowed while we were in there, and I had to go, I had to go load out in the snow that had snowed since I was there. And I wasn't dressed for it. I'm in my stage garb, which in Chicago is slightly more conservative than it would be now, but still. Sure. You know, I'm not wearing my giant snow boots you know and i just remember thinking this sucks you know and now i gotta load the gear and i gotta drop off the keyboard player at his house and i gotta shovel his wing to just get his hammond in the house but that's and you know that's just party gig in there and i mean you know you know abandoned rochester new york or minneapolis would would say that's nothing you know we had to dig through 20 feet of snow just to get out of the driveway but uh no there's a comfortability about having nice weather yeah you know a buddy of mine um who lives up in San Luis Obispo, we kayak and we hang out, and we have, we have this joke amongst ourselves. We're like, man, don't you wish it were raining right now? 
man, don't you wish it were cloudy? Man, don't you wish the weather were crappy and cold today? Yeah. And because, camping out here, no bugs. Right. No bugs, no humidity. It's great. It's a paradise. Yes. Expletive. Sans expletive. More music, man. What do you got for us this time? Here's a song called uh, Heavens to Betsy, uh, a really a really great song I wrote in New York several years ago while I was out on tour and hanging out in a hotel with a bunch of doctors, and they didn't want to hang out with a witch doctor like me, so I went back to the hotel room and I wrote this song, and I'll be playing this song every day for the rest of my life. All right, this is my guest, Ted Wolfers. Again, like I said, so very happy to have him. Uh, he is an internationally, internationally touring artist. Are you not? Have you, you've played in international dates. I have, and I've... Um, I've been moving a lot of records overseas and getting some good radio play over there. So. Full-time musician. Uh, so it can happen to you, man. Hard work is the key, because this guy works harder than anybody I know. So this is a tune from him, and uh, let's dig this on Independence Day. Minnesota Ohio Oh South Dakota Sweet heavens to Betsy I never seen eyes like your eyes Sweet heavens to Betsy I never seen eyes like your eyes Look away. Look away. Look away. 
Very, very nice, Ted. You can do a lot with two chords, man. Thank you. That's kind of the beauty of that song. You know, it's uh, every time I play it, it's always different. With the band, it's always different. Solo, it's always different. And it's uh, it's an experience. It's a it's a little bit of a journey every time. It's cool. there's, a, there's a little bit of a U2 kind of thing because you're doing like 1-4, one, 1-4 four, one, four, a lot through a majority of that tune. And I if, appreciate you recognizing that a little bit. Yeah. And if, and if anybody, because that's, that's what U2 stock and trade is. They, yeah. don't, they don't have a ton of chords. No. You know, they do kind of break apart traditional like diatonic theory structure. Sure. They're not tied to that like a lot of bands are. But they do, you know, they'll set up a chord progression like that and they will make an anthem out of a very simple chord progression by working with intensity. Sometimes simple is best. It's elegant simplicity, man. That's what I love about Tom Petty. He comes up all the time. Well, it's He's funny you say that. My, my lucky number seven, um, I got a really great letter where a guy said, this reminds me exactly of uh, if wildflowers, the Joshua tree, and some girls all had a baby. And I said, well, well, you pegged me. Yeah. Thank you. You know? Yeah. 
That's and, high. That's very high praise. Those are those are good records. And I just hope it sells. You know, one percent of all of those. <laughs> yeah, I think I think I might settle for a tenth of one percent. Yeah, a tenth of one percent is fine, brother. Yeah, yeah, totally. So uh, you mentioned also before you mentioned hysteria, like when you went to set mm-hmm. out to to write this record, because that's a record. I mean, lots of singles off a record mm-hmm. that that charted and had videos. Um, so when you set out to make a record, like that was a goal to make it like his, like to use that kind of framework well, to have lots of really catchy songs on it. Well, here's, here's what's funny. You know, this record, um, I know so many people right now are driving around the country listening to this as they're, as they're driving right now. Um, this is the, the rec- I wanted it to be the record that once it gets in your car, it never leaves. You know, it's, um, not to say that it's not a record for all times of the day, but it's, it's a, a go get you, yeah. you know, really powerful thing. And, and, um, and yeah, you know, back, you know, I've, I've had so many A&R guys and in, you want to talk about industry people, the difference between the industry, you know, I could, if I had a nickel for everybody who said, brother, if you were 25 in 1986, you would be a millionaire by now. And I wasn't. So why are we even having that conversation, you know? Yeah. And uh, if I had a nickel for everybody who's told me that, um, I would have a million dollars in mansions right now. But um, it's the kind of thing where you just, I've always tried to put out the best song and the best record and the best show possible. And I don't think there's anything you can ask for of an artist or of yourself from the, you know, the listener standpoint and the, the creative standpoint. And with this record, you know, we really tried to outdo the, the, the not so great songs that now in retrospect going, I, I now get to go through all of those songs, not, not the records out. There's some great songs in there. That just needed a little bit of touch up because these were getting the attention. Yeah. And so, you know, the next five, six albums, whatever, are gonna get some of the leftovers from Lucky Number Seven sessions. And and that's a great thing. But um, no, we you know, the thing about an album like Def Leppard's Hysteria, you know, a lot of people don't like Def Leppard or don't like Mutt Lang. I love Mutt Lang. And there's nothing wrong with having an album that has a lot of songs that get played on the radio. And I'm very happy that on at my little level um, this is really getting a lot of radio play right now. And, and it's hard to get airplay in 2013, especially for an independent musician, it because is. we've got stations like the Jack, which are essentially like a cyborg, yep. you know, programmed to play music at the proper time, that at the proper moment in the minute or the hour of the day sure. that's going to get you going or mail you out And or at whatever. least they say that, though. Yeah. Because all the other Clear Channel stations are the same. Yeah. They're just, they're the Jack with a humans, you know, giving you the news and the weather yeah. In between and taking a phone call, you know. Yeah. At least I, I kind of, as much as I hate the Jack FM model, I love the Jack FM model because they're saying we're just an iPod. They're brazen about the fact that they're an iPod attached to a transmitter, essentially. Right. Whereas all these other stations where you meet these DJs who, you know, love my music and have bought my records and say, man, I would love to be able to play your album. Yeah. <laughs> Then their hands are tied. Yeah, it's Tom Petty, last DJ, comes last back to DJ. Tom Petty again for like the sixth time in this conversation. Well, um, he, he's 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 done okay, and I think if you're in the rock and roll Americana business, he he is the American king. Yeah, and so. staying power because the thing about Petty that blows me away every time is that he has been, he's. He's not like Bowie, where he's always ship shape shifting and like becoming different things. You know, Tom Petty has done essentially the same, the same thing. thing at a very very high level since the mid seventies. Yeah, and it's all of its quality. You know, he veers just a little bit this way, a little bit that way. You know, a little thing with Dave Stewart from the Arrhythmics, a little bit of thing. You know, a little rockier here, a little sure. bluesier there. 
but it's always good. It's always good. And, and you know, I've really learned from from really loving the Tom Petty's and the Crackers, going back to them. And one of the things I, I love about going to a Cracker show is, um, you know, uh, they've had some really great successes, but they haven't had the the Tom Petty Rolling Stones successes. But man, you go see their show, and and they're just such a great rock and roll band, and the catalog is so deep. And what's so fun about my Thursday night show is where I play from three to four hours. I get to go through my catalog. And I recently just signed a really great deal with this company who's representing my catalog now for uh, placements and licensing. And it was so, they heard me on the radio and they approached me and they said, they did all the research and they said, wow, you have hundreds of songs. I said, yeah. And it was so amazing for somebody to actually fall in love with the catalog instead of somebody coming up to me and saying, well, we don't have that hit and you're not 19, and you're not a girl. Sorry. Yeah. You know, and because I've got lots of hits, and I'm not 19, and I'm not a girl, but I have a really great catalog, and it's it's really fun to kind of, you know, have that working for itself and doing some stuff now at, at, at a different level, but that goes back to the Tom Petty and the Stones, and I just saw Paul McCartney last week. Talk about a catalog. <laughs> the, the catalog. He, he, covered, um, he covered a guy named George. He played something. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, and, and that's, that's the thing. And I look at it, I've always, I've always thought of myself as a box, of box set artist. You know, I, I would, I've always loved to have, I would love to be able to put out like an amazing box set someday. Because I love box sets. Where you really get to hear the early stuff. Where they're kind of getting their feeling. Their, their, their feet are wet slightly. And then once they're in the lake and they totally are completely self-aware, and once they know who they are, they know what their audience wants, and they keep giving it to them. And, you know, Angus Young from, from ACDC, uh, a guy said, you know, you've, you've probably put out 20 of the same albums in a row. And it was like their 21st record. And he said, I take great offense to that because we put out 21 of the same albums. And you're going to see me in the schoolboy outfit, and you're going to love it because that's ACDC. Yeah. And you don't want or know anything different. If you wanted Bowie, go buy a Bowie record. Exactly. You know, if you want a Sting record, buy a Sting record. Everybody buys what they buy, uh, or buys what they like, I should say. The difference is Sting could, you know, come in here and shuffle the, the paper bag, and it would be artistically awesome somehow. Yeah. And he would explain it to us how it would be even more on a universal level of the, you know. At great length. Yes. At great, great length. <laughs> You've got such a Midwestern work ethic. And I think that's one of the reasons that you're so successful at doing this. And there's so many people, like Harrison Ford always comes to mind. All these people like from places like Chicago or like a, a middle America type town. And they come to a place like L.A. and they apply their Midwestern work ethic to this paradigm. And they can find great success here. I mean, is that something you feel that you've been able to do? I've noticed that a big thing uh, working in the recording studios here. There are amazing studios here, and there are amazing engineers here. But I come from uh, my, you know, I, I did a record with Chris Shepard, my Agave Blue record in 2002, and he did Wilco's Being There, and he did uh, Infin uh, Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness of uh, um, Smashing Pumpkins. And we come from a world where Billy... Corgan would rent out six studios and have 10 engineers working 24 hours a day, all actually making music, opposed to the R. Kelly sessions where R. would, you know, rent out five studios and nobody would be working and he would show up at three in the morning and, you know, drop a beat and then leave. Um, time is money, you know, and, and it's kind of like, you know, oh, we're here, the band's here, they know the songs, the mics are up, the EQ and the compression is right, let's make music. 
Why talk about it? Why, you know, take a break? Why go get a burrito? We can do that afterwards. And I, I think that work ethic is definitely, um, thank you for, for appreciating it. But uh, my buddy Davey Riley and I joke about that all the time about how, you know, when I'm in a session, it doesn't stop until we're done, whether it's three days or four days or, you know, and it's kind of not like, oh, yeah, okay, we're, we're done after getting sounds. No, let's do it, you know? Yeah. And that's what's great. My, my 663 Sound Studio, um, if you don't hear from me for three days on Facebook or Twitter or from a cell phone or an email, I'm working. I'm tracking. I'm, I'm finding that idea. I'm chasing that thing. And uh, it's, it's what has to be done. I've read that Prince is like that. Really? That he has, you know, again, Midwestern, Midwestern guy, still lives in Minneapolis, and he's got his, you know, Paisley Park facility up there. And he's got staff musicians who come in like a time card job sure. every day. They show up, like, what are we going to do? And they record. Now, I don't know exactly that this is true, but I've read it in more than one source that that's what he does. Like, he makes music. You know, he's not always in designing clothes or doing whatever else. See, you know, going, I just going remember that door. time when I played basketball with him and Charlie Murphy. I'm just kidding. Dave, <laughs> Dave Chappelle reference. <laughs> <laughs> I can't imagine Prince would be too terribly good at basketball. He's a kind of a, he's a diminutive man. It's a really great Dave Chappelle skit. <laughs> yeah, I do love the Dave Chappelle. Well, the world needs Dave Chappelle, too. Where is that guy when you need him? Southern Ohio, raising his family. Is that where he is? Yeah. Yeah, good for him. Check. I, it, I can see why you would want to get this off of you. Yeah. Well, yeah. you know, the thing about it, look, you, you know, you look, you look at people, we, you, you went, we talked about some, some great artists. Um, I just was working with somebody who, she, she came into my studio and she's like, man, I really want to be famous. And I stopped the session because I said, I just really want to make a song. <laughs> I'm, I'm producing you. Like, I, I can't help you be famous. You know, you have to, that, that's luck and that's marketing and that's your time and place in the world. Um, I've been doing this all my life and I'm going to be doing it all my life and I'm a career artist and a lot of the managements and a lot of the A&R people and a lot of the record labels they want that hit for two seconds and I think the really wealthy managers and the really wealthy A&R people have seen the career artists and seen wow we can actually make a lot of money off of this guy over a lifetime not over a quarter of a, a you know of yeah. a tax year and this goes pretty deep in terms of like the corporatization of america and mm -hmm. music as product we need commerce of music like people we have to get it to people we make it and sell it as musicians artists songwriters performers uh we need that income to keep doing it to sustain us so people a lot of times feel like art and commerce you know they kind of butt heads and they Big do time. but you need that commerce you know tom petty we keep he keep coming back to him he sold millions upon millions upon millions of records acdc one of the best-selling bands of all time pink floyd the rolling stones the eagles all these bands people liked it and they bought it buying that music allowed them to keep doing what they were doing right. you know so i always encourage people buy music at shows because these are the artists the artists who are out there selling records at shows are the ones who are out there doing it and hoofing it and, and, and also it. you know if you're if you're at a label artist show i can't tell you how many of my good friends are on really great labels or bad labels and they have to buy their merch from yeah, the label from the to label. sell it at shows and the only way they make any money on that is if you buy their merch at the show yeah and so if you have that 30 or 300 dollar bar tab 
find room for the $10 t-shirt or the $15 CD or whatever. Yeah. You know? Yeah. We have a whole, you know, I don't want to rag on the kids, but we've got a generation. It happened in my lifetime where they're in their, they're conditioned to not buying it Yep. because it was free. It was free for a long time and they're still trying to work out how to monetize this. And I'm curious, like for you, what, I don't need numbers here, but your, your revenue streams, like, where do you make your money doing this kind of music thing? Is it like 40% at the show? Is it 10%? I mean, this is just ballpark figures here, like 10% on the internet. Is it t-shirts and CDs at shows? Is it touring? Like where, where, you know, cause you're doing this professionally, but where are you making your money in this environment, one which the, is so hard to do? One of the great things I have to say is, um, I really love the company CSAC. Um, performance rights organization performance, like BMI or right. ASCAP. They're they're kind of the dark horse mm-hmm. of the BMI ASCAP people. I was on ASCAP forever, and I would be on TV. I'd have TV appearances. I'd have live TV shows. I'd be on the radio. Um, you know, some big stations, and it got to the point where I was sending out songs to my rep on the air, saying, "Hey, this goes out to so and so." And I would send him <laughs> the recording of that from that radio station because none of that was being reported. And I said, whoa, <laughs> you know, I'm doing all this TV stuff. I'm doing all this stuff. I'm working, you know. Um, and so there were a couple of years, if I had been on CSAC, those have been wonderful years. Um, I can't say, I can't thank them enough for really kind of pioneering the uh, reporting live shows. You know, every live performance, you get royalties for your in, that's, in theory, <laughs> in reality, with CSAC, it seems. In reality, with CSAC, and so you know, I've been very fortunate to play for some really big venues, uh, some big numbers of crowds, and it's kind of your 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 set your set length and your 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 attendance actually kind of helps you in the end in the end of the day. And um, there's that. There's licensing. There's uh, producing people's records. There's playing on people's records. But most of it is from. Um, you know, tickets at the door and people buying CDs and people, you know, supporting that. And so when, it, when a record comes out, people buy it, you know. And I've been very lucky that, um, you know, people people have at least supported my records enough to uh, to keep putting them out. Yeah. Well, that's the, I mean, that's the goal to get started. I remember everybody, like, oh, I just want to do it to keep doing it. Sure. You know, and then, but the goal, if you're, if the goal is to make a living at it, you've got to take it several layers, several oh, levels beyond that. But you have to find, you know, I mean, one of the things about Los Angeles, I found that, you know, um, I've done music jobs here that I had, I would never have expected to do. You know, I've scored some really great um, video games. There's a video game Hexair coming out very soon. I just did all the music for. Um, you know, there, there's, there's so many different avenues out here that you have to find and explore. It's not just like, well, here I am. I'm at the gig. Where's my money? You know? And also, if you kind of, you were talking about running in circles. If you run in those same circles where venues aren't paying you, well, go find some venues that will pay you. Yeah. You know? Art needs to be rewarded because it's it's all about our time. You know? And a lot of people, a lot of artists, I don't think, understand time. And a lot of fans don't understand time. You know? It's, it's. It takes so much money to make music, to make a record, because you have to have other people helping you out. You're paying them by the hour. Well, if they're worth anything, they should be getting a good wage by the hour. Yeah. 
and you have to really budget your time as well. You know, if, if I'm going to be here, I'm going to be in this venue for seven hours. I could be doing something else. Uh, it better be worth, you know, your time. I think a lot of musicians are conditioned to not being paid. So they have expectation is to not be paid, and it just becomes the self-replicating cycle. Well, I had a friend. She was working a wedding, and she asked the DJ. She said, you know, my friend Ted's trying to get up to San Francisco on the next run, and he's exploring different venues. Do you know any venues that pay? And he looked her in the eye, and he said, well, he should just be lucky to be playing San Francisco, man, because it's really neat to be on the road. And I said, well, you know, if a, if a million venues are going to not pay him, but he's still going to provide music that night, they don't have to pay a band, and the audience is getting music, and they don't care because they're drunk. And that's where you really see everything kind of crumble. And I wish, I wish music were a little bit more like sports, where if you and I wanted to join the NFL right now, on the music you know, uh, example, all we need are helmet and shoulder pads, right? Because you just need the, uh, the equipment and the colors. And that's, you know, all you need is a, is a MySpace or a Facebook or, you know, this and that and a horrible recording. And I'm a band, you know, George Carlin has a great quote. He's like, you know, the world's going to end when everybody's in a band. <laughs> and everybody's almost in a band right now. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. My, uh, my relatives in Alabama say there's too many people riding on the cart and not enough people pulling. Right. You know, pushing. I think Chris Christopherson said a really good thing about Americana music. He said one of the problems with Americana music is there's more musicians than fans. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the cart example perfectly. Yeah. I look at a band, you know, I always, I always bemoan the fact that my, my uh, idols in the genre, bands like the Jayhawks or Sunvolt or even Wilco for that matter, um, you know, they're doing it. They made a living at it. But, you know, if there was any justice in the world, the Jayhawks would be making Justin Bieber money. Sure. Well, if there were any justice in the world, Justin Bieber wouldn't exist. <laughs> well, he can exist. I just don't want him to play music. I mean, the kid can the kid can go play hockey or something else. He's Canadian. Well, he just he? stepped on the Blackhawks logo when he was at the United Center, so he has no business talking about Oh, to yeah, that's a deep-seated problem. <laughs> You're right. That's a problem. I've got enough Justin Bieber stories for days. but Yeah, yeah, yeah. How about we're uh, – I, I want to get one more tune in here before we run out of Definitely. time. But before we do – Or three or four. Yeah, you, you got to tell me about this fish. You have a fish. I, I, you caught a fish that's in the Field Museum, which if you've ever been to Chicago, is this giant museum at the south end of Grant Park in a very picturesque location. It's a big internationally renowned That's a really well-known museum. natural history museum, yeah. It's, How um, in God's name do you catch a fish and get it in the Natural History Museum? Well, there's a great sto story about it. Um, my, my dad, who's no longer with us, he and I, um, he and I went deep sea fishing. and um, Where? Uh, it was off the coast of Hawaii. It was about a mile and a half uh, southwest <coughs> off the uh, coast of the Big Island. And we went deep sea fishing. We didn't know what we were going to catch. You know, I mean, that, that, it's, it's like writing a song. It's like, you know, is this one going to be a hit? Are people going to like it? Who knows? Um, and the captain, Kevin Nakamura, um, went nuts. And it took me 45 minutes. There's a great video of it on YouTube um, of me reeling the fish in. And it was a... Uh, a 663-pound, 14-and-a-half-foot Pacific Blue Marlin, which was a February record at the time. And it was in a bunch of fishing magazines and whatnot. And it was that Hemingway moment, you know. And I'm a catch-and-release fisherman, you know. Um, I really enjoy being outdoors, but I don't like eating the fish. I don't like, you know, killing the fish. I don't like taking the fish. And the way that fish was hooked, we had to bring it in. But um, 
My publishing company is named after that fish. My recording studio is named after that fish. And I think it's really cool that if the one fish that I'm going to, you know, kill, so to speak, if her legacy and lifetime can go on to influence all these people, it's pretty cool. So because it was a an enormous fish, we had a model made. And um, when you have a 14-foot fish made, you think it's really great in theory. It doesn't fit in your car. It doesn't at fit. All. Or your house. Or your house. <laughs> so at, at one point, it was it was in my parents' garage. For for like a year and a half, you know, in in one of the in, in like like in the stall where the it, car where, goes, where, where a car would go, right? And, and that's so, big for a car, yeah, fourteen feet. And so uh, it, it was one of those things of um, where is this going to go? And I said, you know, we should put it in the field museum. And so uh, we put it in the field museum. They were very happy to take. Did it. Did you just like call them up and say, hey, I've got this giant fish. Basically, Do you want it? Basically, yeah. I and and here's here's the funny thing. Um, when I when we first gave it to him, it um, we had the, it barely fit in their freight elevator. Like literally, the the bill was about to be clipped off. It was a very scary moment when we hit down on the elevator, going into the depths of this beautiful museum. But there's this huge Tyrannosaurus Rex there called Sue, mm-hmm. and she's one of the oldest Tyrannosaurus Rexes in the world. And I didn't realize that the real Sue is in the basement. So they put it's the a cast mo- right. Well, the, the the real Sue is there, and the, the right, but the, the cast travels. Okay, but the one that was on display, that's not actual bones. That's like a cast made from the Depending bones. Depending on what Sue you saw. Okay. Yeah, the, the Sue that was forever there was the real bones. Okay. Then she was moved to the basement, and I think various casts have traveled. I, there's lots of Sues. I don't know. I don't know if I'm supposed to say that. But um, I, th- I think it's common knowledge that that's not the actual deal. So uh, anyway, they put my Marlin right next to Sue, and so she was in the basement. And they said, we're going to hang her in the fisheries. I was like, okay. That's cool. You know, it's in the museum. That's pretty neat. I said, yeah, I really wanted an exhibit. And so they said, uh, okay. And so as my career over the last couple of years has kind of boosted up in a weird way, they're like, well, now we're going to put it here. And now we're, and now it's going to be in this really amazing exhibit starting in March of 2014. And it's going to then travel the world after 2015. And I might be playing some shows in the various museums that it's at around the world, which is amazing. Again, I want this marlin to have an amazing life. To, if kids can learn about marlins and fish, and, it, you know, it's, it's a beautiful thing. So, Does the fish have a name? No, just 663. There's just okay. her weight, you know. Not, not all women want to be called by their weight, but she does. <laughs> Ted, I, w- I would venture to say that almost no women that I know. But, uh, yeah, so, she, so she's going in, in, into this big exhibit, and so it's kind of a, a joke with my friends and family that um, as my career gets bigger— I'm hoping that the first thing you see in the Field Museum when you walk in is the marlin. Yeah. So the Ted Wolfers. I don't work to make money. I don't work to get fans or to sell CDs. I just want my marlin to be (laughs) higher up in better exhibits. It's all about the fish, man. Who who would have thought that after all these years, all this toil, right? All these songs and heartbreak and joy and exultation, it comes down to a giant fish. Yeah, no sex and drugs and rock and roll and girls. It's That's just right. it's just a fish. Have you baby, have you seen my marlin? Right. <laughs> it's bigger uh, than most. Yeah, now we're doing very, very bad uh penis jokes in bad Liverpool accents. So we accents. can say that word though. We can say that. We can say penis. Okay. So I don't <laughs> say that word very often. Yeah, well, I don't know. Seldom do we have cause to say the word penis on Independence Day. And now we say it like four times. So at at this point, I'm gonna digress. Let's get another song in because we're, we've, we've been talking for a long time. We could talk all night, uh, and maybe we will after we're done here. But for now, uh, how about a tune? 
Here's a song. This goes out to the Marlin, and this goes out to everybody listening. Um, it's a song from my Lucky Number 7 record. I get an email about this song every day from somebody around the world saying that it's helped their life somehow. It's called Dreams Come True. Every now and then they do, and this goes out to you. Oh, very, very nice, Ted. I can't wait to hear this. Thanks for being here, man. Thank you. Here's Dreams Come True. Well, here we are, going through the madness, trying to find a little bit of gladness. Something good to get us through. Yeah, here we are, going through the phases, flips of the coin, good luck and graces. Bit of the old, bit of the new. Well, life goes on. On and on There's something for me and you Dreams come true Fall a little bit of boys Grow up to be a man and still play with toys Work real hard, pay their dues Dreams come true Fall a little bitty girls Grow on up and be women of the world just doing whatever they choose Dreams come true Oh yeah Dreams come true Ooh. Well we worked so hard to make this money You step back and the whole thing's funny What's that gonna get you when you're through? Yeah, we all try hard to be good people In temples and bars and pretty church steeple But I'd rather think, what would Elvis do? Dreams come true for a little bit of boys Grew up to be a man and still play with toys Work real hard, pay their dues Dreams come true for little bitty girls Grow on up and be women of the world Just doing whatever they choose Dreams come true Oh yeah Dreams come true Oh Round and round well, there she goes, where she stops, well, no one knows, nobody knows. It's that bit kid called up to the major, the girl elected to write legislature. How are you going for the guy on the moon? It's that little this the little boy who wants to do that just doing what they want to do dreams come true for a little bit of boys grew up be a man and still play with toys work real hard pay their dues dreams come true 
Once again, Ted Wolfers is my guest. That's badass, man. It's Thank good you. to hear positive music because it's, it's hard to do positive and not be hokey. It's the most positive song I've ever written, but it's from a from a really good place. You know, I was I was in a very dark time when I wrote it. I, it was like I need to quit the music business. It was kind of one of those moments of what am what am I doing here? And uh, some really good things happened. And uh, I closed most most of my shows with that song and it's it's a nice send-off you know it's it's yeah. a good and, and man do i get the fan mail about that song yeah and it's uh you know in a in a non-justin bieber world i think that song would be would be number one with a bullet yeah in a lot of ways and and, and, and it is in my little world in, so. in reaching people you know i mean i when i think back about the reasons i got onto doing this making if i can give someone the feeling that i got from the artists that I loved when I was a kid growing up, if I can give someone even a part of that, a percentage of that, I will feel like I have succeeded at music. Exactly. And no. I feel like I feel like you're the kind of guy who would share that kind of uh, sentiment. Yeah, no, it, it's, uh, they're the reason that I'm here is I was influenced by some really great people who put out really quality stuff and were really good about doing it. And, and I've, uh, I've just tried to carry that torch, you know, and put my own little spin on it. And it's, uh, it's really all you can ask for. And Ted, I say this with high praise that, when you say that you were considering quitting the music business, I can't honestly picture you doing anything else. It's way too late for job training. Yeah, well, it's never too late, but why? <laughs> you, you look what you're doing, man. You're doing great stuff. So what's, Thank you. what's next for you real quick here? we got to roll out pretty soon here. But we, you've got this record just came out this year. You've got these shows at King's Head Pub, Studio City, every Thursday, uh, yeah, every Thursday night, every Thursday. running through at least October, perhaps beyond. Marathon shows, lots of songs, fun guests, yeah. interesting covers. It's a great show. Good and, times. And, and it's one of these just, it's so fun to be playing seven minutes from my house. Yeah, that's a beautiful thing. In my favorite bar and having the freedom to kind of do it ever throughout a night. Yeah. And, uh, but the rest of the year, there's going to be a lot of touring. Um, for me, earlier this year with um, signing the big uh, licensing placement deal and getting my catalog together, we had to remix 240 some songs uh, for Lord. In instrumental versions and other things of of songs that didn't have those those mixes and so it was a lot of music business this year um more than touring and playing i'm usually between 50 and 200 shows a year and I, it looks like you know with the fall i'm definitely going to be there i think i'm already at 50 so you know it's kind of a light year for me doing that but um but yeah no there's going to be a lot of uh a lot of touring a lot of playing and uh, i'm working on a ukulele record right now um, that's kind of all these really beautiful, fun ukulele songs I've been writing. And I'm working on a classical music record of all the crazy piano, showy-offy classical guitar pieces that I've written since I was 15 to now. And uh, who knows when that'll be recorded, but it'll be out soon. Yeah. Very, very nice. So as always, you've got your nose to the grindstone, the place where it belongs, man. Definitely. So you should let that, uh, let that Midwestern work ethic shine. Thanks, man. So, no, it's, uh, if, if you take the Midwestern work ethic and you combine it with the... Uh, 
the Hollywood Hills, good things happen. Yeah, indeed. I c- couldn't agree more, man. Well, I'm glad we're sharing our state here, our home, our new home adopted state. So uh, you can learn about Ted Wolfers at tedwolfers.com, also facebook.com slash tedwolfers, and at tedwolfers at the Twitter. Perhaps you've heard of the Twitter somewhere out there. So thanks very much to Ted Wolfers, also to the Independence Day staff, Dale Tanksley, Wayne Topinski, and Sally Shackleton. And as always, to Valentina Rivera and Miguel Florencio from Lancer Radio, Independence Day's theme music was composed by Great Lakes Myth Society, and they really are great. Check them out. For Independence Day, I am Joe Armstrong. Please be good to one another. Thanks, everybody.